So the theme of Hebrews we've seen has been Jesus is better. He's better than the first century Judaism that the people that the author is writing to were tempted to go back under. He's better than our best efforts at keeping God's law. Jesus is better than any sort of form of religion we think we would do that might (coughs) please God or even try to manipulate God. Jesus is better. He's better than Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the temple. He is the temple. Jesus is better. He's worthy of our faith even when that faith causes us to suffer. And so when we get to the end of this book, the author starts to get into some very practical things. And it's it's really what I think he's doing here is he's saying, listen, this worthiness is meant to be displayed practically. That the fact that we say Jesus is better is not just something that that we think that the idea of Jesus is better, therefore the ideas connected to Jesus are better and the morality connected to Jesus is better. But the, the, the reality is that Jesus, being better, is worthy to be trusted in every area of life. And that we should respond practically to that. It's not good enough for us just to say, yeah, yeah, I believe that, that sounds good. But there's an expectation that as we believe in Jesus, it's going to show in all these areas. And so we're going to look at just three kind of main areas where we're going to, where we want to demonstrate practical worship. We'll look at another three next week. But this week we're going to look at just three in these few verses. And we start with where he gives this really clear command. The author writes, let brotherly love continue. This is the first of the three. We want to, listen, practical worship shows itself as we abide in brotherly love. And the fact that he starts off saying, let brotherly love continue, says something. There's an indication there, isn't there, where the word continue. Continue means, guess what? It's already been happening. They've already shown brotherly love. And this is profound because, listen, these people, these Hebrew believers in Jesus, were suffering greatly for their faith. And even in the midst of suffering, they were still making the effort to try to love one another, as well as love the people that were persecuting them. And yet this word continue also means that it's tempting for us to just give up, to stop abiding, stop practicing brotherly love. I mean, Jesus said that, didn't he? Jesus said in Matthew 24 that lawlessness will increase, and because of of that, what will happen? The love of many will grow cold. It's difficult. We can all go, yeah, it's amazing and, and beautiful that Jesus would call us to love our enemies until we have enemies. <laughs> and then we have those enemies and we think it's just really a bit harder than I thought, Lord, to love these people. And yet he's saying, let brotherly love continue. He says, this is it. This is the enduring standard for us as Jesus followers. It's love. This is the foundational ethic for Christians, it's love. And this is called, we're called to continue, to abide, to persevere in this. Now what's amazing is, is this is something that's universal across the New Testament specifically. It's in the Old Testament as well, but it's in the New Testament specifically. Like when Paul writes to the Thessalon- uh, uh, those in Thessalonica, he writes this, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves, notice, are taught by God to love one another. 
When he writes this to this church, this church in Thessalonica is a church that Paul and his team planted in a matter of weeks and left on their own to fend for themselves. But God was doing such a radical work there that God's Spirit was teaching them, listen, here's the foundational ethic, love one another. Peter writes a similar thing. Again, Peter's writing to persecuted believers when he says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth, that's the truth of the gospel, and obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now this is one of the times when these different words for loved are used uh, simultaneously and synonymously. So that we will read in Hebrews when he says, let brotherly love, you probably know that phrase, brotherly love, is one word in the Greek language, Philadelphia. Whereas what you have here, listen, <coughs> in 1 Peter, in the verse on the screen is, he says, in sincere love of the brethren, in sincere Philadelphia, make sure that you agape one another, which is the other Greek word that's used for love. And they're used in the same way. Now, I bring this up because it's important for us to recognize that, that the author of Hebrews is not calling them just to kind of will something forward. He's expecting the same Spirit of God that showed them that Jesus is better is the Spirit that's going to not just call them to love, but enable them to love. And he gets some practical examples of this. He says in verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers. Literally, that phrase could be translated, don't forget to practice hospitality. In fact, it, 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 the way it reads in English, it says entertain strangers. It could be practice the love of strangers. That's what the word hospitality literally means, the love of strangers. He says, for in doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And he's talking about, like what we see in the Old Testament, there was a there was a time when Abraham was, was sort of being hospitable, which is what they would do in that culture. You just, it was expected. Someone, a stranger comes by, you invite them in and you feed them well. And as he does that, what it turns out to be is two angels that are there with, well, actually three angels that he's there actually kind of feeding and taking care of. And they don't find out until later on that those are actually angels that he's entertaining. Happens with other Old Testament characters as well. But there's something here that's more important than the fact that, ooh, goody, I might be having lunch with an angel. Something more important, and that is this, listen, that part of abiding in brotherly love means we love people that we don't yet know are our brothers. We love strangers. Or maybe people that we assume are our brothers because they're at church, but we never met them. You know, one of the most interesting social experiments that I've done with this church, yes, you're guinea pigs and I've done some experiments on you, is to try to make you, and we still do this, we still do, well, remember at least, we still do this, try to make you all wear name tags on Bring and Sarah Sunday. Have you guys been here when we've done that? It's amazing how much you resist that. It's, I gotta say, it is a very British thing. It's, it's really funny to me. You just don't do it, or when you do it, I've seen it so happen. You put the name tag on, move the scarf over the name tag. <laughs> Let the hair down over the name tag. Put the name tag upside down so one can read it. I've seen it all. The name tag goes right here. It's crazy. Why? Because listen, we don't like strangers. We don't like this idea of the unknown even when it comes to people. But do you realize that the call to love, this foundational ethic of love, is meant to be shown to strangers? Now, there's a practical reason this was happening 
in this time in the first century when the author of Hebrews wrote this letter, and that was, you know, a lot of the people that were Christians, that were Jesus followers, were very, very poor. And so they couldn't afford, if they were visiting somewhere, they couldn't afford to stay in, a, in an inn. And so they were, they were dependent upon the hospitality of strangers. So they might come into town and, you know, say, you know, I'm a Jesus follower and have to deal with that persecution and then say, I'm looking for other Jesus followers and maybe be, you know, told, well, they're over there, those lot hang over there, and then go meet those Jesus followers and hope that somebody would let them and their wife and their children stay with them overnight. It's a big deal, isn't it? You can see why the author would say, listen, if we're going to love our brethren, we need to entertain them or be hospitable to them even though we don't know them very well. It's interesting, too, about hospitality because, you know, the Scripture commands that me and Adam and soon-to-be Joe, who are pastors in this church, we're commanded to be hospitable. Look what it says. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, But the overseer, that's the elder, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. We're supposed to be showing hospitality. So important is this. Peter says this in the context of love in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. Not just like, yes, I choose to love you even though I can't stand you, but fervent love for one another. Listen, for love will cover a multitude of sins. How do we show that? By being hospitable to one another without grumbling. Why is the house group at my house again? Stop grumbling. Love one another. But not just hospitality. Look what it says in verse 3. He says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now, I've done just a very little bit of prison ministry when I was in the States, mostly going to a juvenile detention center because I could relate. And so basically, I didn't do that much of it. But I'll tell you, it's a really great ministry to do. I don't know if anybody is stirred towards prison ministry, but if you are, talk to one of us. We'd love to see something like that take place. There's a, there's a prison in Norwich, there's another prison just outside of town. It'd be great if people from our fellowship would, would actually commit to doing that. If you're already doing that, we don't know, let us know so we can pray. But let's get back into this context to see what it was like for these people, because here's how it worked in those days. As, as, as unpleasant as prison might be today, in this day, when this letter was written, prisoners were dependent upon the sympathy of friends and even strangers to get even the most basic necessities like daily food. You were put into a cold stone cell with nothing. And the only way you were going to survive in that place was if somebody came and said, you know what, we feel bad for you, here's a blanket, here's some food. And that's the only way you're going to survive. But here's the tricky thing. Those who came to help the prisoners were assumed to be involved in the same activity. So you had to kind of take that risk. And I want you to think about this for a second because these people that the author is writing to, many of these people were in prison Many of their family and friends were in prison. For what reason? Believing the gospel. They would believe the gospel. This is probably before Roman persecution was beginning to take place. But there was the Jewish persecution against their brethren who were believing in Jesus. And so they would sort of slander these guys or get these guys in trouble. So a lot of these guys were going to prison, especially the guys that were pastoring these churches. 
And think about the risk. You would have to say, I'm going to identify with this guy in prison, not just to help him have compassion, but what, what does that put me at risk to do? Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because when the Scripture makes this plain statement, let brother love continue, we go, oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's a good thing. I feel warm and fuzzy about that. But what about this? Listen, what about when it's costly? What about when to be hospitable, you have to give up your own goods, your own time, your own space to host somebody? What about when it's risky? That people go, why would you hang out with them? Are you like them? Will brotherly love continue then? Jesus in Matthew 25 talking about his own judgment when he will come back and judge as king. He says this, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, these are those he's going to reward, he says, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And you know how it goes, don't you? I didn't even put those verses on the screen because you know how it goes. And Jesus will still say to Jesus, when did we do these things? And he will say, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Love identifies with its object. Do you realize that is the gospel itself? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved his creation in, the, in, in its fallenness that he chose to clothe himself in human flesh and walk this earth and display his care and his compassion and his authority and his goodness and then choose to take on the wrath that we should take onto himself so that he could forgive us. He identified with us. We think sometimes, gosh, you know... Okay, so there's a God. How does he know what it's like to be me? Because he's been a person. He's been human. He added to his deity, humanity. He knows what suffering is. He knows what rejection is. He knows what persecution is. He knows what misunderstanding is. And he did that to identify with us and to pay a price so that we could be forgiven. That's why love, brotherly love, continues. It continues because we believe that. Yes, Lord, you are our elder brother. And you identified with our suffering and paid for our sin. And if you so love us that way, we're going to trust that you're going to produce in us that love for one another. So that's the first thing. Abiding in brotherly love. The first way we, we do, the foundational way we practically worship is brotherly love. Even when it's costly, even when it's risky. Now, verse 4, he says, Marriage is honorable among all. The bed undefiled, that is the marriage bed, it's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now here's what's interesting. 
One of the false teachings going around in the first century was that you're more spiritual if you remain single. And so people would say, okay, I want to be more spiritual, so I'm going to remain single, and if I can just remain single, I'll be more spiritual. But then they had these natural urges, so guess what they would do? They'd fall into sexual sin. And the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says you're no more spiritual for being single or being married. Neither is a higher level of spirituality. But what the author is saying here is, listen, you need to understand that marriage is honorable among all. All, all people, all believers specifically, should honor marriage. Marriage is a good thing. Now, so this is the, really the second thing. Here, here, how do we practically worship Practically demonstrate that Jesus is better. We do it by honoring marriage. What does that look like? Well, let's first understand what marriage is. We live in a day and age where that a definition for marriage is up for grabs, and it makes it very difficult. It's hard to know, isn't it? Well, let's go back to the words of Jesus and see what he says about marriage. Because there was a time in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus is, taught, is questioned by the religious leaders of his, of his day about marriage and divorce. And so when he answers them, he goes right back to the creation account. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew 19 should be on the screen. Matthew 19, (laughs) verses 4 to 6. It says, Have you not read, Jesus says, that he who made them, that's God who created them at the beginning, male uh, and female, he created them. He made them male and female. He says, listen, And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Think about what this says about what marriage is, according to Jesus. Marriage is two opposite sex image bearers coming together, starting a new family unit. They're in active sexual union. Sex isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing. And also, listen, they're in a lifelong commitment. So trying to just take at face value what Jesus says about marriage, here's how I would define marriage based on what I see in those scriptures. Listen to this. Marriage is two opposite-sex image bearers starting a new family unit and active sexual union in a lifelong commitment. That's marriage. That's what God calls us to honor. Now, I want to be really clear about something before we talk about how we can honor this kind of marriage. I don't believe that we need to engage in culture war to honor this marriage. Now, I have strong opinions, and I I will go on the record to say I would have voted against gay marriage. I really apologize if that offends you. I don't mean it just to be offensive. I would have voted against it. But that's not going to be what I'm doing to primarily honor marriage. It's now law. It's now what can happen in society. So guess what? It's done. It doesn't keep me from honoring marriage. And it definitely, listen, can't keep us from loving people, it shouldn't keep us from loving people who disagree with us on that. You can honor marriage, and we're going to talk about how, and still love people who disagree with you on this. Now, I know there's some tricky situations about what do we do? Do we go to uh, friends? First of all, I hope you have friends that are gay. Maybe you don't know they're gay, but I hope you know you have friends that are in the LGBT because there's a, there are more and more people who are considering themselves in this 
situation. That's a whole other topic we won't get into. But the truth is, we should be loving these people. But here's the reality. You can love those people and disagree with them. And you can honor marriage without, without having your main, your main motive be to say to these people, what you have isn't marriage. So we can honor what, what Jesus says about marriage without making our focus be we're, we're against those people. Does that make sense? Can we agree that it's tricky to do that? So how do we then as believers, as people who take this as God's word, who follow Jesus, how do we honor this marriage, marriage of two opposite sex image bearers starting a new family unit and active sexual union in a lifelong commitment? Well, that could be a whole series, couldn't it? But let's talk about the area that the author talks about here. He's talking about the aspect of marriage that is, of course, sexual union. So here, here's what he says. Listen, he says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not. In fact, if you're not, if you're not used to church, you might know that the Bible. That you might not know that the Bible talks a lot about sex. There's an entire there's an entire book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon that deals very graphically about sex. In fact, it's so romantic and so descriptive that in Jewish tradition you weren't allowed to you, you weren't allowed to read that until you were 40 years old. Now the church has historically tried to allegorize that and say it's got nothing to do with sex. It's just totally got to do with you know Jesus and the church, but. Nah, it's more than that. I think there's an application there, but it's more than that. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting is what Paul says in the New Testament about sex. Uh, let me read to you what Paul says about marriage and sexuality in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, you can obviously, I hope you know that there's the inserted words are my words. They're not in the original text, okay? He says, listen, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. He's talking about sexual union there. And notice, it's meant to be affectionate, not mechanical. So that in marriage, sex is meant to be an expression of affection, not just like, well, we're married, I guess I gotta, I gotta do this. That's not how it's supposed to be. Now you, you snicker and you laugh, but I do enough counseling to know this can be the case. He says also, listen, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The point here is not, honey, you need to do more sit-ups. <laughs> the point here is, listen, this is about serving the other, not demanding what you want for yourself. He goes on to say, do not deprive one another except with content for a time that you may give to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, it needs to be intentional, not just occasional. And here's the thing that gets tricky, and this is one of the things, again, without getting too detailed in this, that here's a reality. Different people have different sex drives. And there also is a reality that different people um, have different circumstances. There can be Mitigating circumstances that mean you're not able to have sexual intimacy within marriage. It can happen. Illness, injury, all kinds of things. 
But the reality is, listen, that there's meant to be an intentionality. It's meant to say, okay, we're not going to just go, well, if it happens, it happens. We're going to go, you know what? We're called to love each other and honor marriage this way, so we're going to pursue, as part of the whole picture, a healthy sex life. Now, I'm sorry if that makes you feel uncomfortable. Imagine being in my shoes. I've got to talk about this. But the reality is, is that I think we, we need to understand when the Scripture tells us that marriage is honorable, it's not just the institution. It's the practice. We're called to practice honorable marriage. To pursue what God has for us in marriage. And not just sexually either. That's why I gave the whole definition because <laughs> here's the problem. When we treat marriage as an institution, then we can focus on it. It's got to be two opposite sex, and it does, biblically. But forget that both parties, male and female, are equally made in the image of God. And there's a giving and receiving that has to take place. We can forget that marriage is the basis for a family unit, not children. How hard is it for a husband and wife who want to get pregnant that can't, that don't have children, feel like they're not yet a family? They are a family. They should be encouraged that they are a family. And this idea of lifelong commitment, you know, you know the Bible is really clear, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, about how God does judge unrepentant sexual brokenness. The Bible's clear about that. But you know the Bible says that God hates divorce? When Sarah and I were engaged in my idealism, actually before we were engaged, when we just started dating a poor woman, I'm like bombarding her with all my ideals on the first date. I remember saying to her really early on, all right, here's the deal. I have a past, therefore I don't want any kind of physical involvement. And we're going to know in three months if we're going to get married or not. Are you cool with that? Is that all right? Is that good? Are you okay? She's kind of like, I just thought you were cute. <laughs> and I remember saying to her, okay, here's the deal. I'm called to ministry, so we're not going to have a lot of money. And, and the reality is I'm going to be focused on the kingdom, so I might not always be around. And the truth is, you know, I don't believe in divorce. So if we're going to do it, we're going to have to die <laughs> together. But you know what? That idealism has served us well. Because we've realized, listen, and this is not again to condemn anyone here who's been divorced. Divorce is not the impartable sin. But to say, listen, we talk a lot about the culture, cultural aspects of what marriage is. But God calls us, listen, as Jesus followers, to honor marriage in a way that is just way beyond all that. It's way beyond all that. Now, I know this is touching a lot of nerves. And at the end of the service, we're going to have a time where you can pray with people. There'll be some men and women both available for you to come and pray with people. And no one's going to judge or assume that they know what you need prayer for. But listen, we're talking about how we can practically worship Jesus. And we do that by honoring marriage in a holistic, healthy way. Interesting, because it's not just about learning to give and receive, but it's also about having an eternal mindset for marriage. Again, Song of Solomon, look at what it says in Song of Solomon. The writer says this, 
should be on the screen. He says, you, talk, talking to his bride, he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love. That's good stuff. You're intoxicating, my dear. Love it. But do you understand what he's saying there? Did you get the thing that we underscored on purpose? My sister, my spouse. Sarah and I are married till one of us dies, which will probably be me first. <laughs> She's going to kill me soon. <laughs> but we are brother and sister forever. Forever. So that aspect of our relationship needs to be the thing that we focus on. How can we help each other walk with Jesus? That is honoring marriage. Hey, you could be having a just great sex life several times a week or whatever you would deem to be great and never pray together and fail to honor marriage as believers. God calls us to do this. Listen to what Paul writes about marriage. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy, or sorry, that she should be holy and without blemish, so that husbands ought to also love their wives as the church. Do you see the connection there? Why is Jesus loving all of us, male and female, as his bride? He wants to present us spotless. He wants us to be able to enjoy him forever. So our marriages should reflect that. We want to be able to enjoy Jesus for eternity, so we're investing spiritually in each other. Now, before I move away from marriage, let me just say one more thing. You do not have to be married to honor marriage. And you definitely have to be married to, be married to glorify God. Don't forget, our Lord was single. So those of you who want to be married and are not yet married, be patient. Your singleness now is a gift. And you can honor marriage, not just by sexual abstinence, but you can also honor marriage, listen, by wanting what God wants for it. So you're primarily waiting for somebody that you know is going to help you know Jesus better and whom you can help know Jesus better. But I need to also say this too before I forget. <laughs> the last part of verse 4 says, listen, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Listen. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to quote from the NLT because I, I know these verses so well I wanted to read them in a a version that I don't always use. Paul writes, Do you not realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people. I so want to tell a Donald Trump joke right now but I'm not going to. None of these, listen, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Did you guys see that list? And notice what he says after that. And some of you were once like that. Listen. We honor marriage 
by living out the way God calls us to live out when it comes to marriage, and by not shying away from the reality of not just sexual brokenness, but all brokenness, that God says he will judge those who are unrepentant. Let me be really clear about something. God is not punishing you or does not look forward to judging anybody just because they're sinners. He judges people because they don't turn to him. It's analogous of this. The ship is sinking. You're on the Titanic and it's going down and you're not going to survive in the freezing water. But he has come with the lifeboat and the life preserver and he says, listen, I'm not causing your death. You are. Here's the life preserver. If you say, no thanks, your judgment's on your own head. And I say that compassionately. God doesn't want that for you. Don't fool yourself. You know, I, I, and I don't, I'm not just saying this to younger, younger people, because I'll tell you what, again, having done ministry for 25 years, done, I did most youth work, but you know what I found? I found that older single people can be just as, as prone towards fornication as young single people. Seriously. Don't think that God's going to say, oh, that's cool, I forgive you. You know I love you. Just sing good, good father and feel good and that'll be enough. No, he says, look, you've got to turn from that. You've got to turn from that. And not just sexual sin. Did you notice that Paul includes there thievery, idolatry, which means having a view of God that you've made up for yourself. It's not just worshiping a statue. It means you're worshiping a God of your own imagination. My God wouldn't do what you're saying, John. Well, you're worshiping idols then. Listen, part of practical worship is us humbly bowing ourselves before God's standards. Listen, not as those that are better, but just as Paul said, we are just like this. And except for the grace of God, so go we. Some of you guys know my testimony, and no, I'm not going to throw any stones when it comes to sexual brokenness. But God still calls us to turn back to him. He still calls us to honor his standards on these things. So, practical worship, it's abiding in brotherly love, it's honoring marriage, and here's the one that should be more convicting, because they'll be honest, probably more of us are guilty of this. We need to learn contentment. Look what the author writes, listen, verse 5, he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. You know what that word covetousness is? It literally means love of money. We talked about love of strangers. Now he's talking about love of money. He's saying, let your conduct be free from the love of money. Listen, Paul says a similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Isn't it amazing? The scripture says clearly, let your conduct be completely free from the love of money. And most of religious television is about you loving money. Am I wrong in that? Guys, listen, we don't honor God by claiming more. It's not honoring to God. It's not worship. Now, let me be really clear about some of this, too. We're talking about here a lifestyle to pursue. 
There's a pursuit of contentment. Paul talks about he learned to be content. You don't just kind of say, you know what, that's fine, I'm content from now on. It's good if you're feeling content, that's a good thing, but it's a process, you're going to have to learn. In fact, he goes on to say, doesn't he, the author goes on to say here, be content with such things as you have. Now listen, it's clear, it's really important to understand, he's not talking about, this issue is not about what you have, it is really about what you love. He's not saying, oh no, no, you guys, you're covetous because you have too much stuff. Not necessarily. Or you're not covetous at all because you don't have any stuff. Not necessarily. It's not about what you have. It's about what you love. What are you loyal to? What are you living for? He's also not talking about the occasional desire. He's talking about, again, not just like a fleeting desire like like in my case, every time I see a Volkswagen bus drive down the road, I'm like, oh, covet less desire, covet less desire, you know. Sorry, Lord. I'm content. I'm not pursuing that, though. That's not what I'm pursuing. I'm not fantasizing. I'm not going on spending hours on, online trying to figure out how can I get one of these one day. I've already decided my kids are going to be rich and they're going to buy me one one day. <laughs> it is about this, though. Listen, it is about, <coughs> it is about learning, learning to believe that what we have now is enough. And listen, not just enough for me to be happy. Listen, whatever you have, it is enough to share. Now we're uncomfortable. He's going to take an offering. I can feel it. Jesus says, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. How many of you guys have ever heard of Francis Chan? Okay, how about uh, Rick Warren? All right. No offense to Rick Warren, but I far prefer Francis Chan. But you know what two of those guys, both brothers, have in common? Both of them wrote best-selling books and came into a whole lot of money, writing Kirsten Brooks. They also have both in common? They both gave it all away. Francis Chan gave away his, all his money and reduced, he's got, I think, six or seven kids, and they moved into, like, this two-bedroom house. His wife must really have faith. <laughs> Had patience. And they still love stuff. They still love having the, you know, going out for a burger or going on holiday when they can. But they've decided, look, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, we want to fight against greed and we want to just give things away. Rick Warren lives in a big, nice house, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he made so much money on his book, which is a little bit questionable in my mind, but still he made a lot of money. But you know what he did? He didn't just give all that money away. He paid back his church for 25 years of salaries. That's pretty cool. Now, I'm not promoting either of those guys or their ministries necessarily, though I love Francis Chan. (laughs) But what I am saying is, 
we're not just talking about, oh, okay, I'm, I'm content. I, I feel okay making 30000 a year. I'm okay. I, I have what I want or need. I'm comfortable. We're not just talking about that. We're saying, God, what would you have us do with this money, this time, this talent that you've put in our hands? Because pursuing, learning to be content is learning to realize all that I have is the Lord's and He wants me to use it to make Him known. Listen. Notice what the author says. I'm almost done. He says, here's why we do this. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see the secret for contentment there? Do you see what's going to teach you to be content? The very character of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter uh, 31, verse 6. Let me, um, let me read that to you. I think I have it. Yeah, there it is. should be on the screen. Where God says to, uh, <coughs> to the Israelites before they go into the land, He says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid uh, of them. That's the giant you're going to face. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said a similar thing when He sent out His disciples to tell about the promised land, to tell about the kingdom. He says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the similarity is on purpose. How do we learn to be content? Because we got Jesus. <laughs> we have a good, good Father. We have eternal life. We have every good and perfect gift to enjoy. We have a hope beyond the grave. We have the very Spirit of God, He who created the universe, He who raised Jesus from the dead, He dwells in us if we're Jesus' followers. He can produce in us, He does produce in us the power to love others. So we can learn to give stuff away, to let stuff go. We can learn to do without Paul, as Paul says, he has learned to both be a, to abound and to be abased. We can learn to enjoy a good meal because it comes from our good God. This is not poverty theology. It's not prosperity theology. It's just Jesus theology. <laughs> Guys, listen. This is, how, this is where God wants us to grow. This is how God wants to express our faith. Jesus says this. <coughs> I'll close with this first, the last one that should be on the screen. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall I eat, or what shall I drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But what do you do? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If you're not a Jesus follower today, you may be thinking, you've come to church maybe to visit you know, with a friend or something, and you might be thinking to yourself, it sounds like a lot of rules and regulations. 
And I really apologize if you think that because that is not the gospel. <laughs> that is not what we're talking about here. It's not rules and regulations. <laughs> what we're talking about here, listen, is a relationship with your, your creator. We're talking about what he's done so that we could enjoy him forever. And the process of us learning to practically worship is simply a preparation for us to enjoy him forever. Do you know what the Bible says about Jesus while he walked on this earth as a man? The psalmist describes him as this way, listen, that he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his peers. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we see, these, well, we see pictures of Jesus and he's really solemn, you know, you know or, like, or very stoic. I am Jesus. But you know, Jesus laughed out loud. When he brought the children onto his lap, I don't think they were going, oh my gosh, who is this guy holding me? I think he was a baby magnet. They loved him. Guys, listen, people don't come and expose their sins in front of everybody and weep at your feet unless they know this guy, he's got something going on. Anointed with the oil of gladness above his peers. What Jesus wants for those who follow him is he wants us to know that we are free, that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are loved. And listen, and therefore he says, here's how I want you to respond. Abide in love. Honor marriage. Learn to be content. Maybe you're here today and not church and you're thinking, well, those things are attractive. But let me know, they, let me, you need to know they come at a price, a huge price. The price of the death of God's only begotten son. Love is a reality. Marriage is a joy. Contentment is available because he died and rose again. And that's where it starts. That's where it starts. That's where it grows. That's where it ends. That's the A to Z. It's him you want to know. These things flow when we know that Jesus is better.